Well, as you know, we're taking just a, a brief break from the book of Hebrews, both this week and next week. And I'd like to start by explaining what we are looking at today. If you've been part of any church membership process, you know that every organization has a variety of documents by which uh, she is governed, what they believe, how they relate. You've probably seen the legal aspect, the constitution and bylaws. Certainly, if you've been looking for a church, you've seen the doctrinal statement, what we believe. And in many cases, churches have a covenant. These three documents are oftentimes spread out, unrelated. You have to be an attorney to understand the Constitution and bylaws. There's lots of whereases. I'm not sure who speaks like this, but it does sound official. And you can, you can tell that an attorney has written this. You're not sure why it has to be that way when the doctrinal statement is, is vastly different. Many times doctrinal statements are, are so sanitized they could be signed off by any liberal denomination. Oh, they're true, but they're just vague. And then if churches do have a covenant, no one really knows what it is there for or why we have it or who came up with it. Frankly, when I'm looking for a good church or trying to find a good church for someone in another town, I actually check out the resource page. I like to find out who they're reading, what they're reading, and then I'll listen to a sermon to see if they cut it straight. So with all that said, several years ago, we as elders asked ourselves, what is the point? What is the point of all these documents? I, didn't, I know the early church didn't have all these documents. Everyone understood that the church was led by a group of qualified under shepherds called elders, that they were the final authority in matters of doctrine and decisions, that it was the word of God that they stood upon to make these decisions. You didn't need a doctrinal statement because everyone agreed. Jesus is Lord is our earliest creed. It wasn't until later that we had confessions and creeds. A covenant wasn't needed because the church was only made up of baptized believers, people who had put it all on the line and left their, their family and former life or were or kicked out by their family and former life. Those who were part of the church lived like believers or they were put out of the church by church discipline. See also 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And yet, even without these formalities, churches knew who was in and who was out. Church was not a come-and-go affair. It wasn't a spiritual dinner party with a, a buffet of theology. There was real unity. There was a real understanding of who was part of the family. Churches, churches had lists. They excluded unrepentant sinners. They met regularly. They knew when someone was missing. Because the cost in declaring Christianity was so great. And so it was over time that statements became part of the church life. And it wasn't necessarily a bad thing. With the second century, you see the arisal of the bishop. Because he had to defend against heresies. 
And over time you had creeds and confessions. Creeds about who Jesus is, his deity, his humanity, his incarnation, what happened on the cross, the resurrection. Because in order to combat error, there had to be a a summation or a crystallization of truth. You couldn't just say, I believe in Jesus. You had to define who Jesus is. And even today, when you see the cults show up at your door, they will say, well, I believe in Jesus too. But just because you have a Savior named Jesus, if it is not the Savior and Lord of the Bible, the object of your faith will not save. So I think we agree and understand that that certainly doctrinal statements are essential. Can I get a collective amen there? Amen. Doctrinal statements are are essential. You need to know if you join this church what I will preach and what your elders believe and what the body of Christ believes. That we believe in a sovereign triune God. We believe in the fall and depravity of man. We believe in the substitutionary atonement. Jesus didn't die as an example. He died to absorb the just wrath of God that you and I deserved. That we believe in a literal bodily resurrection and that Christ's resurrection is the first fruits of our own. You need to understand that we believe that the Bible is without error, that it is inspired, that it is sufficient. Doctrinal statements are important. Well, fast forward to 313 A.D. and you have... Illegal Christianity become legal when Constantine supposedly became a believer. And all of a sudden you have the legality of the church. And it became important for churches to comply with laws that did not violate Scripture. It became important for Rome to know who was the final authority in your local church. You see, churches oftentimes recognize different authorities as the final arbitrator. How are they governed? Some are congregational, others are governed by a presbytery. We believe Scripture is clear that the local church is autonomous and is to be governed by a body of qualified elders. That would kind of lend credence to what we would call a constitution and bylaws today. Finally, covenants, while we see examples in Scripture, actually primarily came about in the 1500s. You see, in the Roman Catholic Church, you're in unless you declare yourself out. What do you you mean by that? Well, if you're in the Roman Catholic Church, you baptize infants in order to wash away original sin And then when you are 12, you go through what's called confirmation and you become part of the church. The point is this. In Roman Catholicism and then also in Anglicanism, you have a a church that is made up of both believers and unbelievers. Regenerate and unregenerate membership. And though both may agree with a doctrinal statement, in fact, one group is the only one that would have, let's say, a heart change. And so covenants came about in the 1500s as a result of the Reformation to make sure that we had regenerate church membership. 
that the church is made up of believers. That they actually believe the doctrinal statement they claim they say they believe. Covenants then came about in order to actually act upon what you believe. You can't just give lip service, so I just, I believe this. It's like, no, no, no. Christians actually live like they believe. That's what, that's why they came about. Their behavior will match. My friend Matt Schmucker says it well. He says, professional athletic teams write a moral clause into their players' contracts that will negate the financial package if the player fails to display at least a, a modicum of morally upright behavior. We have to practice what we preach. If this is true of athletics, quote, how much more is it true of the church, corporately, and of the Christian individually? We are called, and this is a long introduction, to reflect the character of the king. We are ambassadors, or as Jonathan Lehman says, to define his love to an onlooking world. 2 Corinthians 5.20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on, your, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So we're ambassadors who are pleading with a lost and dying world to come and bow the knee to Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1, he has made peace, but you must bow the knee and receive that. We're ambassadors. And as such, ambassadors live like what they believe. So as elders, we took these three documents and we said, okay, I, I get it. Legally, got to register with the Secretary of State of Texas about how we're governed. That's Constitution and bylaws. I don't particularly, you know, like it or, or dislike it. It's just, that's just what we do. And then doctrinal statement. Well, I understand that's important. We, we got to explain to people what we believe. And then covenant. Well, this is how we behave. Those are kind of all three important. But you know what? What if we put them all together? How we're governed, what we believe, and how we behave. And that's what we did we took out the legalese because we're, we're simple people as Christians. We didn't need all the whereases and the legal stuff. There's some stuff we had to put in there, but we put the bare minimum. The doctrinal statement, we made robust. We tried not to put the, the third tier issues there, just the important stuff of here's what all Christians must believe in order to be Christians, and here's why we're choosing that fellowship. And then finally, our covenant is simply just Scripture. It's just how we are to behave as Christians. 1 John 3.18, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. If we just believe the doctrinal statement, but don't live like Christians, well then, how are we any different than Pharisees, who had really, really good doctrine? but didn't love in word and in deed. You say, well, why is that important? Well, it helps to understand how Scripture is laid out, especially the epistles. If you look at uh, how the Pauline epistles are written, 
Typically, Paul will spend the first few chapters talking about what we need to understand, doctrine. But then he always transitions to, now here's how you live it out. He uses phrases like, therefore, walk. Therefore, understanding this, do this. We see it in Romans too, don't we? 1 through 11 is this wonderful treatise on the doctrine of salvation. And then chapter 12, verse 1, I urge you by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. And so what I want to focus on this morning is that how we behave, that church covenant. If we all understand how important a doctrinal statement is, and it is, I would venture to say that in our day and age, we don't realize how important a church covenant is, how we behave, how that doctrine infuses itself into our lives and comes out of every pore of our being, how we live out the living word, as my former pastor used to say. And understanding this, we will realize that Scripture considers it very important as to how we live. And a covenant is not something we make up, but it is something we draw directly from Scripture. As we have indicatives, what we need to understand, so we also have imperatives. As we have doctrine, so we also have duty. And Scripture is very clear about all these. Our covenant is mostly an expression of the 39 one another's of Scripture. So if you have your covenant bookmark that we gave out, if you'll just kind of pull that out, and let's walk through this together. This is a bit unusual if you're visiting with us today. Normally I spend time in a text. What I'd like to do is I'd like to go through and pick out a few of these things and talk about them. But look at that first clause there. Having repented of my sin and placed my faith in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, having been baptized as a believer and being in agreement with Metro Bible's doctrinal statements and structure, I now feel led by the Holy Spirit to unite with the Metro Bible Church family. In doing so, I commit myself to God and to the other members to do the following, dot, dot, dot. Simply put, those joining to unite in membership and in fellowship with this body of believers must also be believers. They must have a credible profession of faith. And they must have expressed that in baptism because that's a believer's first act of obedience. And in uniting with this Metro Bible Church family, what we're agreeing to is this. We're agreeing to be held accountable to do life together, to worship together, to live together, to grow together, to carry one another's burdens together, to be held accountable together, and also to hold others accountable, to bear one another's burdens, to open up your home, to do life together. Now, I think everyone should go, Yeah, isn't that what church is all about? But let's be honest. Church is supposed to be about that. But in this day and age, you can simply attend church 
You can find your favorite preacher. You can find the best programs, the most convenient building. And never do what we're talking about in this covenant. Never actually be part of a church family. And so I want to take something that is often so familiar to us, and and I want to take it down to ground level and ask ourselves, are we really doing this? And if not, how can we really do this? Because though we are saved for eternity, God has not taken us to eternity yet. He's left us here as ambassadors. And he's, he's left us here as part of this local church family so that we might worship together, grow together, and do life together. And if we don't, well, then we're missing out on the very warp and woof as to why he saved us for now. Amen? So, we're going to look at this covenant. And this covenant is expressed in terms of supporting the local church family. It's, it, it, it's read like this. Um, understanding our doctrinal statement and agreeing with the authority, sufficiency, and inerrancy of the Bible, here's how we support the local family that we're committing to. And there's three areas. We're going to support the testimony, the unity, and the ministry of our local church. That's how our covenant is broken up. Testimony, unity, and ministry. Now, we don't have time to cover the whole covenant today, but I'd like to cover some highlights, and here's how I'd like to do it, if you'll allow me. One, I want to look at just a few clauses under each section. A few under testimony, we're going to spend the majority of the time there. A few under unity, and a few under ministry. Secondly, I would like us as a body to look at the scripture from where we got this covenant, this language. It's going to be thoroughly immersed in scripture, but it helps for us to go to the addresses and say, oh, that's why we have it in our covenant. Because we're pulling this out of Ephesians chapter 4 or Colossians chapter 1. Thirdly, I'd like to talk about how to practically apply it. And I'm going to do something a little different. I want to look at these gospel commands and how to practically apply it. And I want to challenge us this way. I want to challenge us in how we often redefine them. And how we often sanitize them. How we often give lip service to them, but we don't actually understand what Scripture was saying. And so I want to ask ourselves, what did these commands mean to the original audience. What did these commands, these 39 one another's of Scripture, what did they mean to those first century believers? Those believers who were living in times of adversity, who were alone, who were discarded from their, com- their community and their family. How did they understand these things? Because for them, there was no option to not do life together. There was no church down the street. There was no other programs. There wasn't just live stream you could get online. Their church family was all that they had. How did they understand these things? 
So I think it'll help make the richness of our covenant come alive. Let's go ahead and look at the first one. I will support the testimony of my church. Look at the fourth one down. I will support the testimony of my church by showing my commitment to Christ and His church through being with the body when it gathers for Sunday worship, regular observance of the Lord's Supper, and being pastored by a small group. And again, I want us to hear the scriptural commands here, talk about what it means, and then be honest with ourselves as to how we kind of redefine these things. Because I don't think there's a one of us here that would disagree with this statement. It's all thoroughly scriptural. We are to support the testimony of our church by showing our commitment when it gathers for Sunday worship, regular observance of the Lord's table, and being pastored by a small group. Let's look at Scripture to back it up. What about the first one? The regular gathering of the saints. Well, that's Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We're all very familiar with this passage. We all completely agree with it doctrinally. What about practically, though? Everyone is great with this precept until, quote, my situation is different, right? Or I I do agree with that, but dot, dot, dot. Remember, Scripture is not a a living, breathing document like the the Constitution is taught in liberal circles today. It's not interpreted by the modern-day reader. No, 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 we need to understand what did this mean to the first-century believer? How was someone, a believing Jew getting the book of Hebrews for the first time read to them in a small house church in Rome, how did they understand not forsaking the assembling together? I want us to understand this so that we can then apply it to our lives. Next week, we're going to cover 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, imparting the word, imparting our lives. If you were in equipping hour this morning, you know that the, the very core and the crux of what we do here is life on life, shepherding and discipleship. How we understand our covenant practically, not in the ethereal realm, but practically, that will determine how we actually do life together. And I don't mean in a Gestapo sense. I don't mean in a legalistic sense. I mean in just a realistic, relational sense of what does it mean to not forsake the assembling together. How did that first century reader really understand it? So I'm going to give us a new tool. You might want to write this down. It's called TLEC, T-L-E-C. And this is really, really great for understanding not only our covenant, but really understanding scripture as a whole. After understanding the doctrine, as we seek to apply it, how can we use this tool to do it better. T-lek. T-lek. Think like the early church. Think like the early church. So imagine you're part of the first readers of Hebrews. No, no, no. 
Let's go one better. Let's bring one of these first readers to our modern day fellowship. Let's pretend that we could transport a first century Christian and we could make him part of our modern day fellowship. Let's call him Alexander Yakov. He's, he's half Greek and half Jew. That'll make it interesting, right? Okay. We've transported him to the 21st century. He's gone through membership class. He is now part of Metro Bible. He agrees with our doctrinal statement. He agrees with our covenant. He really particularly likes a bookmark. He thinks that's unique, that it's laminated. And now he does life together with us. Maybe he's part of your small group. You're used to hanging around him. He's a little quirky, okay? Dresses a little funny. But he seems to see things so clearly because he's not clouded by our, our, our 21st century cultural milieus, okay? Let's use Alexander to help us think through some of these things. You ready? Do not forsake your own assembling together. Alexander remembers what it was like to worship in the first century. You see, Sunday was, was a work day. And so they gathered in the evening. He had been kicked out of his synagogue. If you were Greek, you were ostracized by your family because you were called an atheist now. You only worshipped one God. That's what they would call you. Do not forsake your own assembling together. What does this mean? It's not talking about quitting church. There's no category in the New Testament or throughout church history for a believer who is not part of a local church. That's not what it's talking about. That's a modern-day erroneous adaptation. We know that because you can look at the phrase, as is the habit of some. So what does do not forsake our own assembling together mean? How about this? Translation, Alexander tells us that Choose worshiping with your local church above all else when you are in town. I would agree with that. If at all possible, choose worship with your local church above your own comfort, above your own discomfort, or anything the world has to offer. So far, I think we're great with this. But then Alexander is sitting around with, with some of us. And uh, one of us starts talking and says, totally agree with this. But I've got this really gifted athlete of a son. And if he doesn't play select baseball, there is no way he will get a scholarship. And, and frankly, with college tuition, it'd just be real hard for us to do this. Alexander, what do you think? Well, Alexander, in his first century way, just sort of cuts to the chase. And he says, let me see. You've been saved for eternity, left here as an ambassador, and created for worship. Are you perhaps unwittingly teaching and telling your child that sports or money or even the opportunity for greatness is more important than worship? He, you see, he's not encumbered 
by our culture, by our world. And let's be honest here. What this father is saying is not hyperbolic. If you know anything about sports, unless it's really football or basketball, there are certain sports to which you will not be able to get a college scholarship if you do not play on select leagues, and those leagues are on Sunday morning. We know that from the tennis background. It costs. And yet that father would not say that he disagrees with the covenant, but we unwittingly make choices that are different. And Alexander frames it for us. He goes, wait, are you, are you perhaps even also teaching your child that this, sports, money, greatness, is more important than worship? If, if you're teaching him this as a child, what decisions will he make as an adult? And you know what I love about this church is that we can have these conversations, these realistic conversations. So what I hear you saying, right? Because if we don't, then our doctrinal statement, our covenant really doesn't make a difference. They're just words. They're just precepts. And so we've got to press ourselves. Now, don't hear me saying that you're in sin if you ever miss church. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is we've got to press ourselves to be honest. And an Alexander Yakov helps us do that. Let's try a greater sacred cow. Yeah, but this COVID is really contagious. And if I come, I might get sick. Or I won't be able to visit family and friends who require that I stay away from crowds. I've been hearing that a lot lately from people. I like to come. I'm not really worried about getting sick. But if I come to your church, then I won't be able to go see, you know, my, my, my mom because she's so nervous about it, she won't let me in the house. Reframe it. That's a hard decision. I don't want to upset mom. I don't want to endanger mom. But I've been saved by the king of the universe. And I've been saved to worship. These are tough things. Alexander responds this way. He says, well, that's a risk for sure. In Rome, we run a huge risk being identified as a Christian with Nero as emperor. And the threat of death is real. I've lost friends. What are your chances of dying of this virus? Less than half of 1%. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we're to risk more than that for following Christ. Look at the next one. Regular observance of the Lord's Supper. I think we get that. We're faithful here. But how many of us come from a Baptist background where you celebrate the Lord's table once a quarter? What would Alexander think of celebrating the Lord's table once a quarter? Or Bible churches, once a month even. Think like the early church. The early church would not see regular observance of the Lord's table once every few months or even once a month. I'm sure, 
let's just put our own selves on the chopping block here. I'm sure there are several things that we're doing that we could do better. And I'm not saying the early church did everything right, but when you're that close to receiving the word of God as the first readers, you have a tendency not to sanitize it. And so I think we need to press ourselves in these areas. Look at the next one, being pastored by a small group. Now, I can show you Acts 2, and I can show you how small groups are valuable, but frankly, I can't show you chapter and verse, nor do I believe there's chapter and verse that small groups are required. And yet we have it as part of our covenant. What is the gospel requirement? Well, it's a Hebrews 13, 17, that, that elders are going to give an account for those in their care. That if you are part of a local body of believers, it is a requirement for under shepherds to pastor you. What would Alexander think about someone who did not know any of their pastors? He would blow his mind, wouldn't he? What church do you go to? Well, I go to, you know, Second Baptist Church down off Creekway. Really? Yeah, who's the pastor there? You throw out his name. Do you know him? No, I've never really met him. What about any of the other pastors or elders? No, I haven't met him. He'd be like, no, 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 you don't understand. This is a requirement that you be pastored by under shepherds in your local church. Now, what we've chosen to do, and it's an application, is to do that through small groups. And so there's not a thus saith the Lord on small groups. It's just here's how we've chosen to do it. I will support the testimony of my church by rearing our children and those in, the, uh, in our care in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Discipline and instruction. Corrective and instructive. Everyone's good with this so far. Where do we get that? Ephesians chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Here's the covenant. We commit as a body of believers to raise our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Really? That's great. Where do you get that? Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Great. Practically, what does that look like? This is where it all falls apart, right? Bring Alexander into the 21st century. He's part of this church. And he hears one of us say, Yeah, you know, if little Johnny hadn't had his nap, sometimes he throws a temper tantrum and we either have to wait till he calms down or we put him in timeout. What is this timeout? How is Alexander going to respond? He's going to say the biblical principle is that children are called to obey, to honor mom and dad. We're not called to be our kids' friends, we're called to be their parents. Dads, do not provoke your children, but bring them up. Alexander would quote Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Or 22.15, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. Application, 
Spanking is the divine tool that God has given us to rear our young children in the nurture and admission of the Lord. Scripture's clear. We have to go there. We have to be specific. Otherwise, people can agree with the pastor all day long, but not grow together. Now, that doesn't mean that we're Gestapo, because we do you realize the majority of uh, people that are coming to Christ and coming to Metro are coming from broken homes. They're first-generation Christians. We don't expect anyone to have it together. But we walk with them slowly, gently, kindly, like one beggar to another, showing them where the food is, showing how we do this. And it's like, can I share with you how someone helped me? And I've got story after story after story and I've watched spiritual growth in family after family. And it's literally this person helped this person because they were helped by someone else. To apply the covenant practically. T-L-E-C. Think like the early church. Let's look at the next one. I will protect the unity of my church by acting in love towards other members being willing to die to myself and my preferences, bearing one another's burdens and rejoicing with those who rejoice. I'm in total agreement with this. And then how many times have I heard, not from anyone here, I die to my preferences all the time. But I got to be honest, I, I just cannot worship with this style of music. It's, it's just who I am. I mean, I was raised on the hymns and it's just I just I just can't get there. And you would understand if you were me. And Alexander's sitting there in this small group. Alexander, whose mother is Jewish, he's used to Havna Nagila, right? Whose father is Greek, he's used to hearing those Greek pagan songs. Who 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 gathered on Sunday so glad to be with the body of Christ, he could care less. Which tune? Because he's singing God exalting worship. And he looks at us and says, I'm sorry, I don't understand. Our church in Rome is made up of all different kinds of people with all different kinds of preferences. And frankly, when we gather together, we're worshiping an audience of one. This does not mean need to be just the pastor saying this. As we assimilate people in the future, and people unwittingly say this. And if you're like me, you've unwittingly said this before too. And we shepherd their hearts towards a correct understanding of dying to your preferences means you do not say that you can't feel good in worship because of a particular music style. We simply are not going to divide over that. It's like, wow, that's kind of direct. Yeah, Alexander taught me that. We can do this. Think like the early church. And by the way, if you have a hard time with the music, you're really going to have a problem when you get to heaven. There was a, um, the archaeologist dug up a hymn that actually had a measure of cadence to the music. I think it dated back to the 300s. Guys, it's music unlike any of us would ever recognize. And I'll promise, promise you, none of us would like it. Okay? But it didn't make a difference. Because the words were so rich, were so God-exalting. I will serve the ministry of my church by warmly welcoming those who visit 
and by showing Christian hospitality. This is my favorite. You know, you can talk about preaching to the choir here. This, this church is so good at this. In fact, everything I've talked about, you guys are already so good at. But I just want to reinforce what we believe. But, but I love this. And, and so just give me five minutes to go through this. When you talk about hospitality, it was the very, it was the very hallmark of the early church. It was what they were about. You didn't have buildings. You, you didn't even have places where they, you know, they, they would rent. You had homes. Hospitality literally means lover of strangers. And because hospitals were often dedicated to a Roman god, Christians would not go to hospitals when they got sick. So therefore, it was the body of Christ that would care for them. Think about how hard it may be, how uncomfortable to, to bring someone you don't know into your home. But then now imagine that they're ill. And there was a real lover of strangers attitude. 361 BC, uh, um, AD, listen to Emperor Julian. He talks about the strangeness of these Christians. He calls them atheists because they only worship one God. He said, atheism, Christianity, has been specifically advanced through the loving treatment rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there's not a single Jew who is a beggar and that these godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. People came to Christ because they said this has got to be real because who would do this? Who would invite strangers into their home? Who would care for those who are ill? Who would care for those who are not even their own, but are pagans? Those who love with a godlike love. So when we commit as a body of believers to, to be hospitable, what we're really doing is we're taking one of the biggest things that God has given us, and we're saying, Lord, this is all for your glory. My home has been given to me specifically to take part in advancing your kingdom. Use it however you wish, as often as you wish, in any way you wish. In Romans 12, 13, we see this phrase, practicing hospitality. It, it literally means pursuing hospitality, looking for opportunities, eagerly chasing after it, finding the needs out there and saying, hey, my home can meet this need. We can add extra water to the soup. There's always room for one more at my table. I remember traveling to, to Ireland, the first place I, I ever preached, and I was staying with a pastor there, uh, and it wasn't until I had been there two or three days that I realized he was sleeping in the closet with his wife so that he could give us the master bedroom. And I just, I felt horrible. But then I realized that was commonplace for him. That's who he was. That, that was the church. And he wouldn't have it any other way. Martin Luther was incredible at this. Of course, you know he, he married a former nun, my Katie, my Kitty, he called her. Kitty 
converted an old monastery because she needed plenty of space. Not only for the children that they would have, but for all of the students that would come and find Dr. Luther and want to learn from him. So she was forever putting people up and housing them and feeding them. Quote, the great house was always full to the brim. If you've ever read Luther's table talk, it came from Kitty's hospitality. It was conversations and questions from students from around their table, which was always open. She was always feeding people. Carl Henry was a theologian. His wife said this about hospitality. It's not a matter of money. It's not a matter of age, social standing, sex, or personality. It's a matter of obedience to God. Jerry Bridges, former president of the Navigators, said he saw more people to come to Christ, come to Christ around his coffee table than he ever did at Sunday services. Why is a covenant important? Faith without works is dead. We can be the greatest theologians, we can agree and have the most detailed doctrinal statement, but what if, if we do not live out the living word, then our faith is dead. And as clear as we need to be on doctrinal issues, and it is important, the Bible is equally clear on our testimony, on our unity, and on our ministry. And the great challenge for us what we're trying so hard to do here at Metro Bible, and I appreciate you putting your, your neck in the yoke with us. What we're trying to do is make discipleship practical. Not legalistic. Not just deeds for deeds sake. We want to stay out of those ditches. But we really believe what we say we believe, what the Bible teaches. And we really live it out in a practical manner. Not making sleight-of-hand excuses. Not saying we agree, but doing what we want. But really, really, really living it out. Even when it costs us. Even when it costs us to bear one another's burdens. And it is this, this practical, think like the early church. Keeping Alexander in, in the forefront of our mind. How would he see this? How would he understand this? That's, that's what will make us the closest thing to a New Testament church that we can be. We don't assume ill motives in people. We walk with people slowly, kindly, gently, but we walk with them practically. Amen.